After all that, I still feel like I don't really know Toru that well. What do you think? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the second half of Norwegian Wood by Haruki Murakami. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book in two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book or you can do either of course and just join me for the ride i'll be summarizing what happens in the book just for you but be aware there may be spoilers you can leave a comment or start a conversation at the bookshook youtube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com welcome to bookshook so this podcast is all about the second half of norwegian wood from chapter seven to the end So there are a few questions that we had at the end of the previous podcast. What will become of Naoko? Will she die? I predicted that it might be a well accident. I was being tongue-in-cheek. And will more of Tori's past be revealed? And why was Midori in hospital? And will Toru and Midori become the perfect couple with hints of Naoko in the background? Okay, so let's begin from chapter 7. Toru has just come back, remember, at the end of chapter 6 from the sanatorium where he was staying with Naoko and Reiko. And they snuggled because Naoko couldn't sleep. And so Toru has now gone back to Tokyo. So he meets Midori in a bar and she seems to have a drink problem. Midori says to Toru, let's go to Uruguay and escape this world and be happy. And Midori describes how free she felt at the laundry deck watching the fire. Quote, going up to the laundry deck with you, watching the fire, drinking beer, singing songs. I don't know how long it's been since I had such a total sense of relief. People are always trying to force stuff on me. The minute they see me, they start telling me what to do. At least you don't try to force stuff on me. Midori tells Toru of sex fantasy with him. And she goes on to ask Toru to have a sexual fantasy about her. And he agrees. And Midori uses her intuition to learn things. She complains about a communist folk club she joined at university and about taxmen. Toru's one-word syllabic answers support her monologue yet again. He's very untalkative. Midori says, quote, I lied. My father is not in Uruguay. He's in hospital. And... They both visit Midori's father and it's very sad. He's very ill. Quote, His body was like a dilapidated old house from which all furniture and fixtures have been removed and which awaited now only its final demolition. Around the dry lips sprouted clumps of whiskers like so many weeds. So, I thought, even after so much of his life force had been lost, a man's beard continued to grow. What an irony. Midori then fantasises with Toru about what his girlfriend is really like. She thinks maybe he's married, maybe she's a 30-year-old sex-mad woman, for example. And Midori says that she loves, quote, porno theatres. And Toru offers Midori a break from caring for her father while she goes for a walk. And here I hope that he doesn't spill the beans about Midori being upset by what the father said when he said, I wish my daughters had died, not my wife. He thinks about Naoko, naked, with the butterfly barrette in the moonlight. It was obviously a really powerful experience 
And Midori's father is not talkative at all, and that's why he's able to think of this. And it does give Toru the chance to inanely chat, which is, we don't really hear him chatting a huge amount to himself. Here's an example, quote, Beautiful day out there, I said, perching on the stool and crossing my legs. It's autumn, Sunday, great weather, and crowded everywhere you go. Relaxing indoors like this is the best thing you can do on such a nice day. It's exhausting to get into those crowds, and the air is bad. I mostly do laundry on Sundays, wash the stuff in the morning, hang it out on the roof of my dorm, take it in before the sun goes down, do a good job of ironing it. I don't mind ironing at all. There's a special satisfaction in making wrinkled things smooth, and I'm pretty good at it too. Of course, I was lousy at it at first. I put creases in everything. After a month of practice, though, I knew what I was doing, so Sunday is my day for laundry and ironing. I couldn't do it today, of course. Too bad. Wasted a perfect laundry day. Ironing out the wrinkles. I like that. Wrinkles have such a strong negative association in this book. I wonder if he's going to iron out Reiko's wrinkles at some point? Question mark. The gasping father says... Quote, ticket Midori Ueno Station. It's very cryptic. So my worry about him mentioning that his father said something not particularly nice to his daughter doesn't actually happen. Midori doesn't know what he meant by this cryptic, quote, ticket Midori Ueno Station. Midori's father goes on to die and he relays their shared experience of eating together to Naoko. Quote, I went to the hospital to visit the father of a girl in one of my classes and ate some cucumbers in his room. When he heard me crunching on them, he wanted some too, and he ate his with the same crunching sound. Five days later, though, he died. I still have a vivid memory of the tiny crunching he made when he chewed his pieces of cucumber. People leave strange little memories of themselves behind when they die. He goes on, I miss you something awful sometimes, but in general I go on living with all the energy I can muster. Just as you take care of the birds and the fields every morning, every morning I wind my own spring. I give it some 36 good twists by the time I've gotten up, brushed my teeth, shaved, eaten breakfast, changed my clothes, left the dorm and arrived at the university. I tell myself, OK, let's make this day another good one. I hadn't noticed before, but they tell me I talk to myself a lot these days, probably mumbling to myself while I wind my spring. It's hard not being able to see you, but my life in Tokyo would be a lot worse if it weren't for you. It's because I think of you when I'm in bed in the morning that I can wind my spring and tell myself I have to live another good day. I know I have to give it my best here, just as you are doing there. Today's Sunday, though, a day I don't wind my spring. I've done my laundry and now I'm in my room writing to you. This winding up of the spring really does remind me of the wind-up bird from his chronicles, the Haruko Murakami's chronicles, that is. Maybe this is a theme that goes throughout a lot of his work. I, I'm not sure. The letter is sincere and very touching. He muses on Midori's dead father's, quote, paltry legacy. And I'll talk about expectations later. It's quite an important theme again. Toro cuts his hand at the record shop and the hospital fixes it up. He goes to see Nagasawa and says, quote, I boiled some water and made a cup of tea with a tea bag, which I think is quite an interesting little quote. It's very cultural, very Japanese. I can't remember making a cup of tea with loose leaf, and I just thought that was a really nice little touch. Nagasawa passed his civil service exams, and he's very mercenary and berates individuals who strive with manual labour. Hatsumi, who is 
Nagasawa's girlfriend and Toru go for dinner to celebrate the passing of these exams. Nagasawa talks of sleeping with other women in front of Hatsumi and Hatsumi reacts and Nagasawa says Toru is self-obsessed. And this is Hatsumi. I've never really got angry at you for fooling around, have I? And Nagasawa says, you can't even call what I do fooling around. It's just a game. Nobody gets hurt. I get hurt, says Hatsumi. Why am I not enough for you? And Nagasawa says, it's just a hunger I have inside me. We're a lot alike, though, Watanabe and me, he continues. Neither of us is interested, essentially, in anything but ourselves. Okay, so I'm arrogant and he's not, but neither of us is able to feel any interest in anything other than what we ourselves think or feel or do. That's why we can think about things in a way that's totally divorced from anybody else. That's what I like about him. The only difference is that he hasn't realised this about himself, and so he hesitates and feels hurt. Nagasawa again talks of the similarities between Toro and himself and he defends himself Toro. Nagasawa says quote where Watanabe and I are alike is we don't give a damn if nobody understands us that's what makes us different from everybody else they're all worried about whether the people around them understand them but not me and not Watanabe that's Toro by the way that's his surname we just don't give a damn self and others are separate is this true Hatsumi asked me no way, I said. This is Toro speaking. I'm not that strong. I don't feel it's okay if nobody understands me. I've got people I want to understand and be understood by. But aside from those few, well, I figure it's kind of hopeless. I don't agree with Nagasawa. I do care if people understand me. He really stands up for himself there. Good. Good. Toro ends up going to a bar with Hatsumi on her own. And then there's some more close studying of females and what they look like. Quote, folding her arms and closing her eyes, Hatsumi sank back into the corner of the seat. Her small gold earrings caught the light as the taxi swayed. Her midnight blue dress seemed to have been made to match the darkness of the cab. Every now and then, her thinly daubed, beautifully formed lips would quiver slightly, as if she had caught herself on the verge of talking to herself. Watching her, I could see why Nagasawa had chosen her as his special companion. There were any number of women more beautiful than Hatsumi, and Nagasawa could have made any of them his, but Hatsumi had some quality that could send a tremor through your heart. It was nothing forceful. The power she exerted was a subtle thing, but it called forth deep resonances. I watched her all the way to Shibuya, and wondered, without ever finding an answer, what this emotional reverberation that I was feeling could be. And then we have this beautiful description of the kind of longing that I touched on in the previous podcast, Youthful Yearning. This is Toro speaking, quote, It finally hit me some dozen or so years later. I had come to Santa Fe to interview a painter and was sitting in a local pizza parlour, drinking beer and eating pizza and watching a miraculously beautiful sunset. Everything was soaked in brilliant red, my hand, the plate, the table, the world, as if some special kind of fruit juice had splashed down on everything. In the midst of this overwhelming sunset, the image of Hatsumi flashed into my mind, and in that moment I understood what that tremor of the heart had been. It was a kind of childhood longing that had always remained, and would forever remain, unfulfilled. I had forgotten the existence of such innocent, all but seared-in longing, forgotten for years to remember that such feelings had ever existed inside me. What Hatsumi had stirred in me was a part of my very self that had long lain dormant. And when the realisation struck me, it aroused such sorrow, I almost burst into tears. She had been an absolutely special woman. 
Someone should have done something, anything, to save her. We learn that around four years after this, Hatsumi, another bright butterfly, kills herself. Going forward in the narrative, Hatsumi and Toru shoot Poole and he goes back to her flat and she fixes his bandage. Toru writes a letter to Naoko, quote, Part of what Kazuki and I shared when we were 16 and 17 has already vanished and no amount of crying is going to bring that back. Toru meets up with Midori and she went to a place called Nara with her boyfriend after the funeral, but she didn't have a good time and she persuades Toru to go to a disco. Quote, This is so much fun, she exclaimed when we took a break at a table. I haven't danced like this in ages. I don't know, when you move your body, it's kind of like your spirit gets liberated. Your spirit is always liberated, I'd say. No way, she said, shaking her head and smiling. Anyhow, now that I'm feeling better, I'm starved. Let's go for pizza. I do like Midori's exuberance there. She shows her body to a picture of her father to say, look, this is me, the daughter you made. She's craving her father's acceptance there in this scene. And her sister is shocked when she finds her like this. This is Midori speaking. Quote, I explained why I was doing it and said, so take off your clothes and sit down next to me and show him too, Momo. Her sister's name is Momo. But she wouldn't do it. She went away shocked. She's got this really conservative streak. Tori says, in other words, she's relatively normal, you mean. Nice little comment there. <laughs> then we've got some more excellent dialogue with Midori as he's trying to soothe her in bed. Quote, Practically falling over the edge of Midori's little bed, I held her in my arms, nose against my chest. Midori set her hands on my hips. My right arm curled around her back while I tried to keep from falling off by hanging onto the bed frame with my left hand. This was not exactly a situation conducive to sexual excitement. My nose was resting on her head and the short-cut hairs there would give it a tickle every now and then. Come on, say something to me, Midori said, with her face buried in my chest. What do you want me to say? Anything, something to make me feel good. You're really cute, I said. Midori, she said. Say my name. You're really cute, Midori, I corrected myself. What do you mean, really cute? So cute the mountains crumble and the oceans dry up. Midori lifted her face and looked at me. You have this special way with words. I can feel my heart softening when you say that, I said, smiling. Say something even nicer. I really like you, Midori, a lot. How much is a lot? Like a spring bear, I said. A spring bear? Midori looked up again. What's that all about? A spring bear. And he says, You're walking through a field all by yourself one day in spring, and this sweet little bear cub with velvet fur and shiny little eyes comes walking along, and he says to you, Hi there, little lady. Want to tumble with me? So you and the bear cub spend the whole day in each other's arms, tumbling down this clover-covered hill. Nice, huh? Yeah, really nice, says Midori. That's how much I like you. That is the best thing I've ever heard, said Midori, cuddling up against my chest. If you like me that much, you'll do anything I tell you to do, right? You won't get mad, right? No, of course I won't get mad. And you'll take care of me always and always? Of course I will, I said, stroking her short, soft, boyish hair. Don't worry, everything is going to be fine. But I'm scared, she said. I held her softly, and soon her shoulders were rising and falling, and I could hear the regular breathing of sleep. I slipped out of her bed and went to the kitchen, where I drank a beer. When she falls asleep, he explores the bookshop, and then the narrative continues, and he receives a letter from Naoko, and he also gets a jumper knitted by both Reiko and Naoko for his birthday. 
Continuing on, we get more of these water metaphors. Quote, Thinking back on the year 1969, all that comes to mind for me is a swamp, a deep, boggy swamp that feels as if it's going to suck my shoe off each time I take a step. I walk through the mud exhausted. In front of me, behind me, I can see nothing but an endless, swampy darkness. Time itself slogged along in rhythm with my faltering steps. The people around me had gone on ahead long before, while my time and I hung back, struggling through the mud. The world around me was on the verge of great transformations. Death had already taken John Coltrane, who was joined now by so many others. People screamed there'd be revolutionary changes, which always seemed to be just ahead at the curve in the road. But the changes that came were just two-dimensional stage sets, background without substance or meaning. I trudged along through each day in its turn, looking up only rarely, eyes locked on the endless swamp that lay before me, planting my right foot, raising my left, planting my left foot, raising my right, never sure where I was, never sure I was headed in the right direction, knowing only that I had to keep moving one step at a time. This time it's not a dry or full well or a sluice, but thick, sticky mud. Ugh. Continuing on, Midori moves to an apartment. And this is great, because she's so much happier there. Uh, Nagasawa continues the routine of hunting for girls. But Toro stays away, which is fantastic. Quote, I had to admire Nagasawa all the more for the way he could continue the ritual without growing sick and tired of it. Maybe what Hatsumi had said to me had some effect. I could make myself feel far happier just thinking about Naoko than sleeping with some stupid, nameless girl. Reiko writes to say, come and stay. And so he does. And it's quite similar to the last time. Naoko can't become sexually excited by Toro. And she is extremely frustrated by this. Quote, and this is Toro speaking. It's strictly psychological, I'm sure. Give it time, there's no hurry. Naoko says, all of my problems are strictly psychological. What if I can never get better? What if I can never have sex for the rest of my life? Can you keep loving me just the same? Continuing the narrative, we have political problems in Tori's dorm that cause him to find an apartment. So he says goodbye to Nagasawa, who is moving on. Toro says, quote, take care of Hatsumi. Good ones like her are hard to find, and she's a lot more fragile than she looks. And Nagasawa says... Mind if I give you one piece of advice? Don't feel sorry for yourself. Only losers do that. And Toro says, I'll keep it in mind. We shook hands and went our separate ways. He to his new world and I back to my swamp. Continuing the narrative, it's now 1970. Midori is livid that Toro has moved and not been in touch. She refuses to speak to him, so he writes to her, but she doesn't write back to him. And Reiko writes to say that Naoko is getting worse. She's beginning to hear voices. Toro is heavily affected by the letter from Reiko. Quote, Hey there, Kazuki. I thought, unlike you, I've chosen to live and to live the best I know how. Sure, it was hard for you. What the hell? It's hard for me. Really hard. And all because you killed yourself and left Naoko behind. But that's something I will never do. I will never, ever turn my back on her. First of all, because I love her and because I'm stronger than she is. And I'm just going to keep on getting stronger. I'm going to mature. I'm going to be an adult because that's what I have to do. I always used to think I'd like to stay 17 or 18 if I could, but not anymore. I'm not a teenager anymore i've got a sense of responsibility now i'm not the same guy i was when we used to hang out together i'm 20 now and i have to pay the price to go on living 
Torah is heavily affected by the letter. He's looking at some cherry blossoms and he says, quote, In the spring gloom they looked like flesh that had burst through the skin over festering wounds. The garden filled up with the sweet, heavy stench of rotting flesh, and that's when I thought of Naoko's flesh. Naoko's beautiful flesh lay before me in the darkness, countless buds bursting through her skin, green and trembling in an almost imperceptible breeze. Why did such a beautiful body have to be sick? I wondered. Why didn't they just leave Naoko alone? I went inside and closed my curtains, but even indoors there was no escape from the smell of spring. It filled everything from the ground up, but the only thing the smell brought to mind for me now was that putrefying stench. Shut in behind my curtains, I felt a violent loathing for spring. I hated what the spring had in store for me. I hated the dull, throbbing ache it aroused inside me. I had never hated anything in my life with such intensity. I spent three straight days after that all but walking on the bottom of the sea. I could hardly hear what people said to me, and they had just as much trouble catching anything I had to say. My whole body felt enveloped in some kind of membrane, cutting off any direct contact between me and the outside world. I couldn't touch, quote, them, and, quote, they couldn't touch me. I was utterly helpless, and as long as I remained in that state, they were unable to reach out to me. My mind had gone slack, like the soggy roots of a subterranean plant. I like the inversion of spring here as a joyful month. It reminds me a lot of the opening of The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. And he uses another water metaphor, this time the sea. Walking on the bottom of the sea is so detached, so isolated. And again, we've got more water with those soggy roots. Going on, Midori finally relents and writes to say that she wants to see him. She's really positive as ever. Quote, Just remember, life is a box of cookies. I shook my head a few times and looked at her. Maybe it's because I'm not so smart, he says, but sometimes I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And she says, You know how they've got those cookie assortments and you like some but you don't like others and you eat up all the ones you like and the only ones left are the ones you don't like so much. I always think about that when something painful comes up. Now I just have to polish these off and everything will be okay. Life is a box of cookies. I guess you could call it a philosophy, says Toru. Midori says, It's true, though. I've learned it from experience. Hmm, life is a box of cookies. I think I have heard that kind of phrase before. Isn't it from Forrest Gump? Life is a box of chocolates. Going forward, Midori hands him a letter she'd been writing saying how he hadn't noticed her hair. Is he finally maturing, not obsessing on the details of what females look like? I don't know. But this was an interesting letter because she actually wrote it whilst he was sitting next to her. Is Midori confirming a gender stereotype that men should be constantly thinking about what females look like? Tori writes to Naoko again, quote, I'm not sleeping with anybody anymore. That's because I don't want to forget the last time you touched me. It meant a lot more to me than you might think. I think about it all the time. He tries phoning Midori because she's ignoring him. And then he sees her in class and he notices everything about her physical appearance now. Has Midori, by scolding Toru for not admiring her looks, given Toru permission to continue obsessing about what females look like? And in some ways, she is helping to perpetuate this gender stereotype. Quote, I saw Midori in class on Wednesday. She was wearing a deep green sweater and the dark glasses she had often worn that summer. She was seated in the last row, talking with a slightly built girl with glasses I had seen once before. I approached her and said I'd like to talk to her after class. 
The girl with glasses looked at me first and then Midori looked at me. Her hairstyle was, in fact, somewhat more womanly than it had been before, more grown up. I have to see somebody, Midori said, cogging her head slightly. I won't take much of your time, I said. Five minutes. Midori removed her sunglasses and narrowed her eyes. She might just as well have been looking at a crumbling abandoned house some hundred yards in the distance. I don't want to talk to you. Sorry, she said. The girl with glasses looked at me with eyes that said, she says she doesn't want to talk to you. Sorry. Crumbling abandoned house. Brilliant. That far off look. And a friend's stare at the end. Hilarious little detail there. Going forward, Toru has lost all his friends. Naoko, Midori, Nagasawa. And he befriends a fellow student called Aito. Quote, it took quite a while before this gentle, quiet student from the oil painting department of an arts college would engage me in conversation, but eventually we started going to a nearby bar after work and talking about all kinds of things. He also liked to read and listen to music, and so we'd usually talk about books and records we liked. He was a slim, good-looking guy, with much shorter hair and far cleaner clothes than the typical art student. He never had a lot to say, but he had his definite tastes and opinions. He liked French novels, especially those of Georges Bataille and Boris Vian. For music, he preferred Mozart and Ravel. And like me, he was looking for a friend with whom he could talk about such things. It's quite an in-depth description of his physical appearance. So maybe that theme that I was talking about of the male gaze, maybe, or, you know, close descriptions of females maybe that was unfair to Toru or the author I don't know what do you think there's another Proustian reference quotes when my teeth crunched down on my cucumber slices I thought of Midori's father which reminded me how flat and tasteless my life had become without Midori and put me into a foul mood how the taste and crunch of something can trigger memories just like the Madeline in Proust's work Aito and Toro chat and Aito loves classical music and they decide Aito should probably leave his girlfriend. Quote, you know what girls like, he said. They turn 20 or 21 and all of a sudden they start having these concrete ideas. They get super realistic. And when that happens, everything that seemed so sweet and lovable about them begins to look ordinary and depressing. Now when I see her, usually after we do it, she starts asking me, what are you going to do after you graduate? Continuing on, he says, What can I do? I'm in oil painting. Start worrying about stuff like that and nobody's going to major in oil painting. You don't do it to feed yourself. Tori gets a letter from Reiko saying that Naoko is getting worse and she's moving to a hospital. Toru and Midori make up. Quote, Like my hairstyle, she asked. It's great, says Toru. How great? Great enough to knock down all the trees and all the forests of the world. You really think so? I really think so. Finally, phew, Toro was getting very lonely, so I'm pleased for him. Does Toro have no family to support him? I'm thinking, I can't recall mention of a family. I, I just don't think there's hardly anything about Toro's family, which is strange. Anyway, they eat together, and Midori and Toro declare their love for each other. Toro says to Midori, I have a responsibility to Naoko. And Midori says to Toro, I'll wait. And then they kiss... Quote, I drew her close and kissed her on the mouth. Drop the damn umbrella and wrap both your arms around me hard, says Midori. But we'll get soaking wet, says Toru. So what? I want you to stop thinking and hold me tight. I've been waiting two whole months for this. I set the umbrella down and held her close in the rain. The dull rush of tyres on the highway enveloped us like a fog. The rain fell without a break, without a sound, soaking her hair and mine, running like tears down our cheeks, down to her jeans jacket and my yellow nylon windbreaker spreading in dark stains. 
Not unlike four weddings and a funeral, perhaps? More water imagery there. The rain. They spend some time together and are truly in love, and Toro still has feelings for Naoko. So he writes an honest letter to Reiko, and she responds saying, find happiness where you can, don't mention it to Naoko, and that Midori sounds lovely. Going on, Naoko dies, she hangs herself in a wood, and Toro becomes a homeless vagabond. For a month, he grieves her loss. So, there goes one of my questions. She didn't fall down a well. I didn't think she would, but I did think she would die. Reiko calls and says, can I visit you, Toru? So she leaves the sanatorium and stays with Toru. And Reiko explains that Naoko talked of making love to Toru. Quote, I knew it would never happen again. Toru and Reiko do some cooking together. And Toru does feel this extreme guilt over the death of Naoko. Quote, I told Naoko I would go on waiting for her, but I couldn't do it. I turned my back on her in the end. I'm not saying anyone's to blame. It's a problem for me myself. I do think that things would have worked out the same way even if I hadn't turned my back on her. Naoko was choosing death all along, but that's beside the point. I can't forgive myself. Toro and Reiko have a, quote, happy funeral for Naoko. Every time Reiko plays a song, Toro lines up a match. And Toro and Reiko end up sleeping together. Going on, Reiko goes back to Asahikawa and then Toru telephones Midori and he says, I have to talk to you, I said. I have a million things to talk to you about, a million things we have to talk about. All I want in this world is you. I want to see you and talk. I want the two of us to begin everything from the beginning. Midori responded with a long, long silence. The silence of all the misty rain in the world falling on all the new mown lawns of the world, forehead pressed against the glass. I shut my eyes and waited. So the novel ends there. Let's hope Toro can start over afresh with Midori. I'm sure he will. Let's go back to some of the questions that I had at the end of the last podcast. What will become of Naoko? Will she die? I predicted that she would, and yes, she did, unfortunately. I asked, will more of Toro's past be revealed? It didn't get revealed. And why was Midori in hospital? Well, we found out that it was because of the father that was ill. Will he and Midori become the perfect couple? I think, towards the end of the novel, it's clearly looking that way, hopefully. Will Toro continue to command magical admiration from females? Yeah, I think he did. And will Stormtrooper continue to be the butt of jokes? Not really in the second half. Was there more of the close description of what females look like? Yes, there was. But there was also some of men as well. So... I was maybe being a little bit unfair in the first half of the podcast. What do you think? Let's look at some of the themes and ideas and how some of them have been continued. Expectations. So Midori says, you don't try to force stuff on me. Totoro, which gives her a great deal of relief. And we've got the legacy of her dead father. These are Toro's thoughts. Quote, I imagine that in death he had shrilled up smaller than ever, and then they had burned him in an oven till he was nothing but ashes. And what had he left behind? A nothing much bookstore in a nothing much neighbourhood and two daughters, at least one of whom was more than a little strange. Again, Toro's expectations and point of view. Her father left behind Midori. What a fantastic legacy. So I think expectations again being slightly skewed there midori says to toro is there anything you want me to change quote 
My boyfriend, which is to say my ex-boyfriend, had all kinds of things he hated, like when I wore too short skirts, or when I smoked, or how I got drunk right away, or said disgusting things, or criticised his friends. So if there's anything about me you don't like, just tell me and I'll fix it if I can. Tora says, I can't think of anything. Which is a good thing to say. So again, expectations. We have more of this close analysis or, or looking at females Quote, I went down to the lobby to find Midori wearing an incredibly short jean skirt and sitting there with her legs crossed, yawning. Every guy passing through on his way to breakfast slowed down to stare at her long, slim legs. She did have really nice, long legs. Going on, Midori says, All these guys are staring at my legs. And Tori says, What do you expect coming into a men's dorm in such a short skirt? Of course they're going to stare at you. And then the doctor says to Midori, quote, that's some short skirt you're wearing. What do you do on stairways? Really inappropriate comment from the doctor. But she just laughs it off. But we also have, as I mentioned earlier, quite a lengthy description of what I2 looks like. We've got this theme of perhaps Toru growing into a more responsible, mature person than in the first half. He's not going, quote, girl hunting with Nagasawa anymore. And... He's choosing to live unlike Kazuki. Quote, Hey there, Kazuki. I thought, unlike you, I've chosen to live and to live the best I know how. Sure, it was hard for you. What the hell? It's hard for me. Really hard. And all because you killed yourself and left Naoko behind. But that's something I will never do. I will never, ever turn my back on her. First of all, because I love her, because I'm stronger than she is. And I'm just going to keep on getting stronger. I'm going to mature. I'm going to be an adult, because that's what I have to do. I always used to think that I'd stay 17 or 18 if I could, but not anymore. I'm not a teenager anymore. I've got a sense of responsibility now. I'm not the same guy I was when we used to hang out together. I'm 20 now, and I have to pay the price to go on living. Now, I know these are only words, but I do think that he's becoming more responsible with his actions. Would I recommend this book? I would recommend it to someone who was interested in 1980s writing. I feel like it's very dated. And it's also dealing with some very strong emotions and relationships and some difficult subject matter. So I'd need to check that that's the sort of thing that that person might be interested in. So definitely not for everyone. Personally, I found it interesting, but not particularly enjoyable. I just want to talk a little bit about Haruki Murakami. I don't know much about him. But Wikipedia thankfully does. He was born in 1949. His books and stories have been bestsellers in Japan as well as internationally, with his work being translated into 50 languages and selling millions of copies outside his native country. Despite one of his books, IQ84, being ranked in Japan as the best work of fiction published in Japan's Heisei era, which is 1989 to 2019. His fiction is criticised sometimes in Japan as un-Japanese, which is interesting because I thought it felt quite Japanese from my Western perspective. Miyokomi was born in Kyoto, Japan, and raised in Shukugawa. He's an only child. His father was the son of a Buddhist priest and his mother is the daughter of an Osaka merchant and both taught Japanese literature. His father was involved in the Second Sino-Japanese War and was deeply traumatised by it, which would in turn affect Murakami. Murakami has been heavily influenced by Western culture, particularly Western as well as Russian music and literature. He grew up reading a wider range of works by European and American writers, such as Kafka, Flaubert, Dickens, Dostoevsky. These Western influences distinguish Murakami from the majority of other Japanese writers. 
He is also an experienced marathon runner and triathlon enthusiast, though he did not start running until he was 33 years old. In 1996, he completed his first ultramarathon, a 100-kilometer race around a lake in Japan. I'd like to talk a little bit now about June's book, which is called The Offing by Benjamin Myers. I've got it in front of me here. It's got a lovely picture on the front of a seaside coastal town and says, a novel for our times. I don't know anything about Benjamin Myers. So I'm going to read the first few pages and give you my thoughts. One. The bay opened out before me, a great glacial basin carved by creaking ice and trickling water hundreds of thousands of years ago. I approached it from the north and saw a giant semi-amphitheatre that held within it farms and hamlets as the land funneled downwards from the purpling moors and below them the fields ran all the way to an opaline sea over which there perilously perched a huddled cluster of houses jiggered together in a cleft in the land. Between them and the water a narrow sweep of glittering sand, a bronze band. The houses sat haphazardly above the ebbing tide on a crumbling cliff face of loose soil and wet clay that was slowly being eroded by the salt spray and circling fret. The homes resembled stranded sailors shipwrecked by the storm of centuries. Time itself was chipping away at this coastal reach, sculpting the island anew in an age of uncertainty. I thought about how the sea served to remind of the finite existence of solid matter, and that the only true boundaries are not trenches and shelters and checkpoints, but those between rock and sea and sky. Here I stopped to refill my flask from a roadside spring that fed into a stone trough, feeling as if I had wandered into a painting. The sun was a brilliant bright disk of shimmering white over a scumbled scape and I understood, perhaps for the first time, what it was that made men wish to pick up a paintbrush or compose a verse. An impulse to capture the pulse-quickening sensation, this nowness evoked by a vista, as breathtaking as it was unexpected. Art was an attempt to preserve the amber of the moment. The fresh water slipped down my throat like cords of silk, cooling my stomach for a moment and pooling there. Water never tastes finer than that drawn fresh from the ground and drunk from metal, whether receptacle, ladle or spout. It seemed somehow to bring the flavour alive. I drank more and then cupped my hands and held them there, a dub in the pinkness of my palms, then patted the water onto my forehead, face and neck. I filled my flask again and walked on. There we go. That's the first, the first opening lines of the offing. I've got to say, let's hope it gets better. My mum bought it for me and said, look, you've got to read this book. But that seems overwrought. It's too wordy. And it's saying things that I've heard a million times. And I don't believe that art is being an attempt to preserve the amber of the moment. And that seems like a very conservative, narrow view of what art is and what art can do. Anyway thanks very much for listening if you have any questions or comments i'd love to hear them the email is bookshook at yahoo.com or you can leave a comment on the bookshook youtube channel and if you want to recommend a future book to read together do let me know i look forward to discussing the first part of the offing on the next episode of bookshook on the second friday of june see you then mm-hmm.